The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. gentlemen to trad controversies on the restoration radio network i'm your host james Trapper, and on this episode i am joined by father anthony chicada of saint gertrude the great church in westchester ohio father so good of you to join us this evening always happy to be here and always uh, happy i guess to be involved in a good controversy on this episode we're going to be discussing anti-saint of and i would like to say or call it title it the defense of the indefensible. So, Father, it seems like there's recently, in the last couple of years, been a, a large increase in condemning sadovacantism, whether it be Catholic Family News, uh, a host of lawyers writing articles and books. Uh, there seems to be no end to the people that are ready to condemn sadovacantists as the latest nuts out of the nut house. <laughs> I think that that's generally been the case, uh, but particularly so uh, during the, um, the past couple of years because of the election of Bergoglio of uh, Francis. Uh, he has done so many outrageous things, so many things that uh, obviously undermined the uh, Catholic faith and the notion of the true church and just about everything we stand for that people who would not have considered the Sede Vacantis position uh, during the days of, of, of Benedict or of JP2 now are looking seriously at it. And uh, that, that is not just a, a um, fantasy on my part, but I hear from these people all over the world now as, as, as a result of our uh, contacts with the true restoration and our uh, internet apostolate. So there's quite a bit of interest in it. The uh, types in the traditionalist movement that I call the R&R, the recognize and, and uh, resist types, such as the Pius X Society, uh, Bishop Williamson, uh, the publications that you mentioned, uh, are still pushing the um, the recognize and resist idea, but it's it's losing credibility, I think, simply because of uh, what Francis is and and what he says and what he's doing. So uh, to uh, stanch, as it were, the uh, potential defections to sedevacantism, these groups have uh, uh, published a, a, a number of. Uh, uh, takes of sedevacantism, which, of course, we feel obliged to answer. And, Father, would you say a large part of it is Benedict XVI, John Paul II, while they did 
outrageous things, uh, generally they weren't very public. Uh, you know, if it was someone was uh, keeping up to speed, uh, you know, they'd be aware of these issues. But for the most part, your average Catholic, uh, your average traditional Catholic, really didn't come across these issues. Uh, but today, with Gregorio so public and so vocal, uh, a matter of fact, it's like he can't keep quiet. These issues just keep staring him in the face. That's that's exactly it, and and that's what's uh, uh, driving, as it were, the different uh, the different critiques. Uh, the press, the secular press, and to a large extent the religious press, uh, portrayed JP two and Benedict the Sixteenth as uh, you know great conservatives, and they love to uh, set up different antitheses. And it's it's a lot easier to uh, say that JP2 is the great conservative or that uh, uh, Ratzinger is the Rottweiler of orthodoxy. And so that's that's a glib uh, statement that's that's uh, uh, easy to make and very easy to write about to uh, set up these these uh, so-called antitheses for the sake of of some excitement. Um, so many people. And we we swim in the media culture, unfortunately. Um, many Catholics uh, take those analyses rather seriously. And then uh, you know JP two, uh, while he did a uh, great number of really crazy things from the theological and liturgical point of view, nevertheless he gave the impression of being a devout guy who loved Blessed Mother. And uh, the same thing for uh, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, but now there's this this um, man that all these people are confronted with, and his uh, liberal tendencies is uh, his his open modernism is something that's very much praised by the secular press, and so he has a, a um, uh, he has everyone's attention now. And I think with this show we're gonna give some basic definitions, uh, which most people already know, but I want to cover them just in case we have new listeners. What is the fundamental premise that is found in the traditional Catholic movement that's common among all these different groups? Well, uh, it's this, that Vatican II is a disaster, and that... um, the uh, the liturgy that it led to the creation of the new mass in 1969 had uh, really terrible effects on um, Catholic worship throughout the world. That the new system of laws that was um, uh, introduced after the Second Vatican Council, based on the principles of the Second Vatican Council, that this led to a disaster as well. And that the new teachings, the new doctrines uh, that came about as a result of of, uh, Vatican II undermined the Catholic faith and led now 50 years after to uh, what is a a, uh, disaster and what has been a continuing decline. So all traditionalists um, of whatever stripe uh, agree on those fundamental principles that there is a, a disaster. The difficulty, or the we could say the um, conflict among traditionalists, comes in how do you offer a credible uh, explanation for uh, these um, 
new doctrines, these harmful doctrines, discipline, this, this way of worship, that seem to have come from the authority of the Church. When we know that uh, Christ promised the, uh, uh, his authority to the Church and promised us that the Church could not lead us wrong, could not give us error uh, in her uh, official teachings, or could not give us evil, that is to say, in her universal laws, command things that uh, were evil. So that is where the uh, dispute, as it were, uh, the dispute lies. And this major dividing line would be, I think you would agree, defined by how we view the papacy. And there's Mm -hmm. a major dividing line separating into two camps. What are these two camps, and how would you define each? Well, the uh, R&R, the recognize and resist camp, um, such as the Pius X Society and the Bishop Williamson and the publications that you've mentioned, these are people who are are outside the uh, structure of the post-Vatican II Church, okay? Um, They... um, uh, their philosophy is that they recognize the Pope, uh, they, they recognize post-conciliar popes as true popes, but they uh, resist them. In other words, they ignore their laws, they ignore their teachings, they ignore the rights that uh, they prescribe. So that's that's uh, uh, one camp. And the other uh, school of thought is the one that I belong to, and we are the Sede Vacantists. That term comes from uh, the uh, term in canon law for the vacancy of the Holy See, Sede Vacante, and uh, we believe that the only way to reconcile uh, the obvious evil of uh, these different uh, officially sanctioned changes in the Church and in worship and doctrine and discipline is uh, to say that they uh, did not come from people who had true authority. From Christ, so they did not actually come from the authority of Christ Himself. So we we uh, seek to find an explanation for that, and the uh, explanation that we reason to based on different principles in Catholic theology is that the post-conciliar popes were public heretics and hence did not have the uh, authority to do what they said they had the authority to do. And that is how one reconciles the infallibility and the ineffectibility of the church with um, the obviously bad things that came from the official documents after Vatican II. And I think on its face, like we kind of talked before with Bergoglio, it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, walks like a duck. I think more Catholics, more and more Catholics are seeing Bergoglio uh, for the heretic who he is, regardless of whether they know any theology or not, it's just that in your face. Yeah, and the uh, thing, uh, uh, the thing is that's very striking for me is you even now uh, you've uh, start to see mentions uh, in uh, the mainstream secular and the mainstream uh, Catholic press of the idea of heresy. And that, uh, uh, you know, if, if the Pope changes the, the rules on 
the reception of Holy Communion by people who are divorced and remarried, well, that would border on heresy. That would be a defection. You have people saying this. You have uh, Ross uh, Do Thought, something like that, Do Thought, who is an op-ed writer for the New York Times, saying something like that. Uh, you have uh, Pat Buchanan um, talking about uh, the possibility of uh, the Pope not really being the Pope if he changes these laws and changes these rules, and actually mentioning the word sativacantism, uh, the, the, the possibility that the sea is vacant. So this sort of stuff is uh, it's in the air because of Bergoglio. That's what, he has, uh, that's what he has provoked. And I mean, if you would have told me, um, uh, you know, even 10 years ago that there would be widespread discussions like this and this and the sort of interest in sativacantism that has developed, I would have said, well, we're going to have to wait a long time for that. But uh, uh, Bergoglio has moved the clock forward. And with this acceleration, there, there's been just a real, to me, it appears a desperate response to cling to a previous position. And they're, they're digging up all these theology manuals to support their position. And it leaves the layperson in a very difficult situation because here on one hand you have one um, opinion giving theology to support it and on the other side you have an opinion that gives theology to support it so i really want to analyze what is the theological basis for both and so in discussing the r and r argument what is the theological basis for this what are the writers the, the theologians that they cite and why are these particular theologians not applicable in this case? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, there's the general difficulty with their position is that the whole idea of, of the, the um, theologians to whom they appeal for the idea of resistance to the Pope, uh, actually, uh, the uh, they are dead wrong in interpreting those theologians. Uh, that way, they're only a couple uh, that they endlessly cite. I think Vittoria's is is uh, one. They cite one passage of of uh, Bellarmine, and uh, I think something from Peter Lombard. But uh, that in itself, I think, would make an interesting show. So generally, for their position, um, there are substantial holes in their their resistance argument. Uh, but apart from that, if we talk specifically about the question of uh, the Pope and loss of papal office. The, um, uh, since the advent uh, of uh, Sadie Vacanta's position, different writers have, um, uh, who embrace the R&R position, such as, as um, Michael Davies and later Christopher Ferreira, have um, appointed to um, uh, a, a small group of uh, theologians in the 16th and 17th century who discussed the possibility of a heretical pope. Uh, Cajetans, uh, uh, Suarez, Paul Lehman, and um, John of St. Thomas. And the uh, solution to the uh, question of a heretical pope that the 16th and 17th century um, uh, theologians gave was that uh, they said it was possible for someone to uh, uh, sitting on the throne of Peter to become a heretic. That that was uh, was a possibility. The question is, well, what happens to him? Well, 
their conclusion was uh, essentially this, that you have to have a, a trial, in effect, to depose him. You give him different warnings, and then uh, you uh, depose him from, uh, from his office. At that point, he loses his, his papal power. So that, uh, those are the theologians, the four theologians primarily that they rely on. The uh, state of the contests um, rely on a line of theologians uh, that uh, essentially was uh, beginning with Robert Bellarmine, who articulated a, a position saying that since faith is uh, necessary for membership in the church in addition to baptism. If uh, a uh, pope, just like anyone else, uh, publicly professed uh, heresy, he would put himself outside the church. And to be the head of the church, you have to be a member of the church. And so he would automatically lose his power. He would not have to be put on trial. So uh, Bellarmine was tremendously influential in this this uh, question. And it was... Um, his position that subsequently was adopted by um, the majority of Catholic theologians, and then by the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it was uh, virtually unanimous of, uh, among the theologians who wrote about the question of a heretical pope. So the, the R&R people um, have uh, adhered to and, and, and continue to push an abandoned theological position that that Catholic theology uh, theologians eventually turned their backs on because they saw the sense of Bellarmine's argument that faith is required for membership in the church and uh, to hold office in the church you lose the faith publicly you break that bond of adherence to what holds the church together and you put yourself outside it so that is about then, that, that hasn't kept the R and R camp from continually repeating uh, these arguments that have been that have been discredited. In fact, one of them, even Bellarmine himself, a Cajetan, he spent about four pages refuting Cajetan. <laughs> so, and just so uh, I think so, the listener understands, at least from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Bellarmine synthesized or summarized an opinion that he discerned was from tradition in the early church fathers' writings, I understand. Is that not true? Oh, yes, that's right. And he, he did a, a, a great deal of, of um, uh, research on that. And, of course, it was much more difficult in those days when you didn't have the Internet. <laughs> so uh, theologians like this are uh, extraordinarily impressive sometimes when you see what they're able to amass in the way of uh, proofs for their arguments. So, I mean, he, he established it as very much part of tradition. So, Father, you said there was a moral consensus among theologians uh, just prior Vatican II on this mm -hmm. issue. Uh, at what point do you know the Church has accepted a certain theological position? Well, I, they, um, they appear in... Uh, the way that works in theology is they appear in um, approved theological manuals. So, for instance, you have these these massive works uh, like uh, the Vernon Vidal commentary on the Code of Canon Law, 
that um, uh, you know is 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 written by a professor at the Gregorian University in Rome. You have um, Coronata, his Institutionis Juris Canonici. Uh, he is another big gun at a pontifical university, uh, the head of the theology department uh, or the the canon law department. So all of these these writers. These theologians were in, in positions of responsibility, and their manuals, the Latin manuals that they wrote, these multi-volume works, were considered, uh, you know, to be authoritative in a certain sense. That um, they were approved; they contained nothing contrary to the Catholic faith, and they did what theologians are supposed to do, and canonists are supposed to do, which is take the doctrines of the Church, apply them. Uh, take the laws of the church and uh, give uh, a correct interpretation of them uh, so that uh, they can be up. So it's, it's, it, uh, you can't just say, oh, well, it's just the opinion of the theologian. Uh, I mean, if they all agree on something, then that is a, a more than probable opinion. You can accept it with with certainty, especially if you look at the reasoning. And that would be a a common consensus at a given time. We're not talking about a common consensus from the beginning of the church necessarily to our given point in time, but if the theologians in general at any point in time have a moral consensus that would have a doctrinally safe uh, oh yeah, and, and not only and more than doctrinally safe, but you know, like certain because the way if you look at the reasoning that these guys use, uh, the tight reasoning, uh, they're not just saying things off the top of their head. So there, there is this this it's um, a real type of uh, uh, authority that they have, real sort of intellectual authority where they they prove their arguments at every point in a very tight fashion. So uh, that's what so, you. Uh, you end up with something that's uh, that's certain. So it'd be like going back to a site, St. Thomas, on the Immaculate Conception versus uh, the turn of the 19th century when all the theologians agreed that the Immaculate Conception was the doctrine of the Church. Yeah, it, because what happens in theology is that the, what these people are paid to and, and fed good Italian meals for is to uh, research and and uh, think and look at what other theologians say, and that's that's how the whole discipline is built up, and uh, that's how you you come to a, a certitude on on uh, these different issues, you know, and then eventually you get to a point. We'll talk about this when we go into phenianism and and the and baptism of blood, baptism of desire, that if there's a universal consensus among theologians about uh, a doctrine. Uh, then it is uh, uh, and expressed in a certain way. Then uh, there is an obligation to accept it, because there, it's part. It ends up being part of the universal ordinary magisterium. Everyone teaches it. Now I'm not saying that that's so, necessarily where we've arrived at with this issue, because not everyone talks about the question of a heretical pope. But um, it, it's it, it's it's somewhat the same flavor that you end up with something that's that's more than certain. And so, besides theological writings, is there any sort of papal documents we have to support the state of a conscious opinion? Any bulls and cyclicals of these sort to lend credibility? Yeah, well, the um, most significant one, which actually uh, was a later discovery among traditionalists, unfortunately, uh, again, because it's so hard to do research, at least in the beginning days of the movement, was Cum Ex Apostolatus Officio of, of uh, Paul IV. 
1559, and he um, uh, he was facing an actual a situation with a cardinal named uh, Morone, whom he suspected of being a, a crypto-Lutheran. So he uh, promulgated this uh, bull, uh, and this is a, a, a papal law, saying that if uh, uh, someone had been uh, a heretic before and had defected from the Catholic faith, was elected to the papacy, his election would be invalid. And his his acts would have no juridical force. So there's this whole list of blood-curdling uh, prohibitions that he attached to it. So what happened is that the 16th and 17th century opinions that you had of, of uh, Suarez and um, uh, Cajetan and Lehman and uh, John of St. Thomas on the question of the Pope, that these in effect were neutralized in the practical order because of this bull of, of uh, Paul IV, which, um, which was signed also by all the cardinals. So idea that one would have to have a trial. And he said specifically, you know, that he would uh, lose his office and authority without any declaration. And it was this, this idea of uh, having a trial and declaration that um, uh, theologians like Suarez and, and Cajetan and company insisted was necessary, and that the um, R&R people uh, insist is necessary as well. So it, 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 the, the, the whole opinion was completely neutered by Paul IV's uh, Cum Ex Apostolatus Officio. But modern theologians even cite a need for a declaration in, in the case of a pope becoming a heretic. Why then are these modern theologians, theologians just prior Vatican II, citing a need for a declaration? What is the purpose of it? Okay, so there, um, it is the... Um, that issue has to do with a um, what's called provisio canonica, the appointment to someone of uh, in, uh, a canonical office. That the Code of Canon Law specifies that if um, an office, uh, if a church office is occupied by someone illegitimately somehow, uh, the person who are the person or the, the, the body of electors that has the right to appoint um, someone to that office has to issue a declaration saying that this guy is, the, that the fellow who's currently functioning as a bishop or whatever is doing so illegally, doesn't have the right to do it. So, uh, and this is an important provision in um, uh, De Personis section, uh, the, the general section that gives the general principles for the appointment to different church offices. So it's, it's laid down that uh, you have to have a uh, declaration. So if it's a bishop who is appointing someone to uh, uh, parish and the former pastor doesn't want to leave and is still continuing to function as pastor, uh, the bishop has to issue a declaration. And the same thing for, say, the bishop of the diocese, say that there's an intruder, a guy who is, who's been a, um, uh, intruded, let's say, as the bishop of Estergom in Hungary by the communist government, and uh, he continues to go around and, and, and function as if he were the, truly the archbishop of Estergom, the, and the pope wants to appoint someone. Uh, he has to declare 
the uh, current occupant's um, possession of the office to be illegal. So that's what they're talking about here. They're talking about someone who, um, in the case of a pope, someone who has no legal right. So the, the presumption would be that, okay, the pope turns into a heretic. And um, the cardinals has the right to elect a new pope. So they say, all right, uh, this guy obviously has no authority. Um, but, you know, hey, he's not leaving the apostolic palace, right? Or I don't know what, you know, he's, you know, he's continuing to appoint bishops, or I don't know, the, uh, you know, he's still riding around in the Pope mobile, okay? If, if, if we were in normal times, let's say. So the, you have to, uh, uh, the, he's still acting as Pope, so we have, have uh, he's a heretic. He's lost his power. He can't command us to do anything, but we have to, um, issue a declaration that the new guy that we're going to elect is going to be the Pope, and this old one is, is uh, uh, doesn't have any right to the office. So that's how it works. It's and like I, in, in, the, in the video that you did that covered some of these topics called stuck in, a, in the rut, uh, <laughs> you use the analogy of a death certificate. Somebody dies. It can be quite obvious that person is dead. But there's a legal proceeding then to follow to declare it such and make it official. Yes, that's right. And, and the idea is that when you do something like that, you have to – that starts the whole process to allow someone else to get his goods and his possessions. Okay, but you've got to have the death certificate. It's actually the same thing in a, a um, uh, papal election that when uh, the, the pope dies – uh, the, the, um, uh, there are several curial officials who, in effect, have to issue a death certificate, and that kicks off the whole process of, of uh, electing a new pope. The, some theologians, by the way, say that, the, uh, that a heresy in a pope, uh, heresy is the moral equivalent of death. So the, that one uh, is uh, uh, to to put someone else in the office, uh, you have to have this this uh, certificate. <laughs> and from the R and R legal defense team, they'd almost be purporting the position that uh, everyone can see the man is dead; he's not breathing. But we can't let ourselves think that until you have a public official tell us. Uh, <laughs> That's basically it. That that um, uh, the that he is not really dead, uh, really really dead, un, uh, unless uh, uh, some doctor signs the death certificate. But it's it's a um, it's to mix up two things. It's to mix up the level of reality uh, with the um, with uh, legality and, and, and legal uh, uh, human law, as it were. So the uh, and that is the problem. Uh, their argument, in effect, not in effect, but in reality, is that you can't even uh, think that one of the post-Vatican II popes is a pope until you have a bunch of cardinals get together and say that well, he's a, he's a heretic. We've given him fifteen warnings or whatever is required, and now uh, we can think that he's not. Uh, you can all think that he's not the pope. But it doesn't uh, actually. It does not. Um, it does not work that way. It's not supposed to work that way because the well, what cuts you off is the defection uh, from the faith, according to these uh, 
according to these theologians. And just to, to summarize this position, and one more point I want to cover is at Vatican I, which would have been a council on the papacy, did this question arise? Is there any sort of documentation of this question at the council, and how was it addressed? Yeah, and uh, this is one of the wonderful things about the internet that uh, I don't know. I came across this on one, on some site, um, and it was uh, Archbishop Purcell or Purcell, who was one of the archbishops of Cincinnati, and he said that the question of papal heresy was raised. Someone raised that in in the the all in the the, the hall or in the, the, the uh, place where the council was being held. And the Theological um, Commission uh, answered the question and uh, said, well, it was unlikely it would ever happen, but that uh, from the moment that the pope became a public heretic, he would put himself outside the church and he'd no longer be pope. And th- this was the answer given at Vatican I, which is uh, uh, ironic, uh, because so often, say to a contest who whose position was based on this uh, notion of a heretical pope automatically losing his office, are accused of being against Vatican I. And here you have the question asked and answered at Vatican I, and we have the testimony to it by one of the fathers of Vatican I, Archbishop Purcell. Not only that, I believe it's also in the... Um, Theological Manual of uh, Serapius Iragui. I think he he talks about that as uh, uh, as well. So it's not the idea of a heretical pope is not inconceivable because you have uh, you had Paul the Fourth talking about the possibility. You also had Innocent the Third talking about the possibility. You have theologians talking about it and outlining the different theories, and you have the the question raised at Vatican one so it's it, uh, the uh, there is a an unassailable uh, theological basis to the fundamental principle that um, uh, you the state of contest are talking about and I guess a common accusation that goes alongside with that is you're judging the Pope, you're judging the Holy Father. You know, who are you to judge? I think they're taking mm-hmm. a line from Bergoglio. Maybe he's stealing it from them. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I but, think he had, that was in a different context. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but in, in the case that a private individual can't judge, does the Cardinals or even a, a council of the Church would that have any more authority to judge a sovereign pontiff as pontiff? No, you, you couldn't because it's it's he 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 can't uh, be subject to uh, because he's the supreme legislator in the church. He can't be subject to his inferiors. So uh, it it knocks him out. It knocks him out uh, automatically. And the one of the theologians who. Uh, writes about uh, the uh, question of of uh, heretical pope. In fact, I think it's Serapius Iragui. He quotes the, one of Innocent III's consecration sermons or his coronation sermons, where Innocent III says that well, the, the pope can in fact fall away to heresy, and he says yam judicatus est that he is already judged. Uh, he is already judged by God. Uh, and uh, he he withers away into heresy. Uh, 
So that is a, you know, that's definitely a possibility. The other thing is that, that look, the, uh, and I talk about this in the video, uh, uh, certain things don't stand what uh, arguments are said by lawyers not to stand the red face test. And in other words, the idea is if you make an argument in public and your face turns red, chances are it's not a very good argument. So what you have with the R&R on this, this particular uh, argument of following the wrong theologians, theologians whose, whose opinions were discarded, is that when you boil it down to practical order, who do you have to judge people like Bergoglio? They all adhere to the same heresies that he does, uh, the same fundamental heresies uh, that he does, the whole set of Vatican II heresies. And what, you're going to have someone like, like Casper, uh, Carl Casper, or Meridiaga, or Mahoney, or the guy from Germany, uh, or Cardinal Schoenborn, the balloon-carrying Cardinal Schoenborn, or, or the cheesehead Archbishop of New York. Uh, the, these people are going to accuse Bergoglio of heresy? You know, it's well, the, 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 the prospect is ridiculous. <laughs> perhaps Cardinal Dolan would accuse Bergoglio of heresy if he became a Bears fan. Yeah, <laughs> or something like that. And uh, I think if 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 uh, you will if you are attentive to the uh, soundtrack of that section of uh, stuck in the, in the rut, uh, as the cardinals are introduced, you will hear a uh, some very uh, impressive trumpet fanfares, a little organ piece that suddenly uh, offers a little opinion on in the way of its tune, on the idea of having these cardinals judge the Pope. And the tune, it just sort of turns into, actually, ascending the clouds, which is what the R&R people are asking us to do. Send in those clowns. <laughs> now one, one more little twist I'd like to ask or angle I'll get sometimes from these rabid uh, anti-Saint of is, well, a future Pope will judge this current pope to have been a heretic. And my thought is, if we go have the principle of only a superior can judge, even a future pope is only an equal if this current man is still the pope. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And uh, the, the principle is par and parum non habit potestatum, so that an equal doesn't have power over another equal. So the the whole idea is is uh, cooked uh, is cooked from the beginning, you know. And then one thinks of all of the um, uh, other practical ramifications that would have in terms of the interpretation of law, and um, it's really a, um, a crazy solution. And no theologian says that. No theologian says that. So uh, as usual, it's it's. Well, it's one of the many myths that have been uh, made up to uh, surround this particular issue. Well, I think that kind of wraps up the first part of the show. And before we move on to the second part and analyzing a new perspective to look at the papacy today or the issue of the papacy, I would like to remind you that you're listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Schrepfer. And I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada from St. Gertrude the Great Church. And today we've been discussing anti-state of a the defense of the indefensible. 
We want to remind you that Trad Controversies is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. And so, Father, we've really been talking about an old discussion, because today, with uh, Benedict XVI, Bergoglio, we really have a new issue that the R&R camp hasn't even addressed. What is this new issue? Well, the the issue is that in the process of, of researching the, the question of the heretical pope, um, we also discovered that, uh, in fact, the same theologians who uh, teach that a heretical pope would fall from office also state very clearly that the... Uh, a person who is a public heretic cannot uh, validly become pope, that, and that is an impediment of uh, divine law. So if you go to some of the same uh, 20th century theological manuals, you will find that, uh, that teaching very clearly expressed that uh, when the um, canonists or theologians talk about the requisite qualifications for someone to be validly elected uh, pope, uh, they say that that someone who is a public heretic is excluded by divine law, and they make it's it's interesting. They they make no distinction as far as someone who has received a condemnatory sentence or anything like that. They just say a heretic, a public heretic. Um, is prohibited by divine law from uh, becoming pope. So uh, that's something that's that's rather striking, and that, of course, is the case we would maintain with um, someone like J.P. Toon, Ratzinger, and Bergoglio, that uh, they were they embraced different heresies before they were elected, uh, and. So there's not a question now of a some sort of a trial of them, certainly not by the, the clownish uh, uh, cardinals, but that they never obtained true uh, uh, papal authority in the first place. But see, that is, again, that's consistent with the fundamental theological um, uh, principle that we enunciated at the beginning of the program, that you have to have two things. You have to have uh, baptism and adherence to the faith to uh, be and to continue to be a member of the church. And if you uh, don't have that adherence to the faith, uh, you're not a member of the church. Uh, if, if it's a public, um, uh, if you do not publicly adhere to it anymore, and uh, therefore you're incapable of having authority in the church. So it's 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 uh, the principle of uh, of divine law of pope uh, being impeded from uh, obtaining uh, papal power, or let's say someone who is is nominated or elected, that that uh, impediment prevent him from preventing him from being validly elected or becoming a true pope is uh, something that that's clearly derived from that uh, very simple theological principle. So it's not a and question of holding. Yep, it's not a question of holding a trial. The thing is that the guy's a heretic beforehand, so he has nothing to lose. He has no papacy to lose. And here is Coronata, uh, who you cite among uh, multiple other theologians, 
He says, appointment of the office of the primacy, number one, what is required by divine law for this appointment? Also required for validity is that the appointment be of a member of the church. Heretics and apostates, at least public ones, are therefore excluded. And you cite multiple theologians who essentially say the same thing. Yeah, it's it, so essentially now that is the uh, uh, underlying principle for the Sede Vacantis argument that these these uh, men are not did not uh, truly obtain the office in the first place because they weren't Catholics beforehand. And I think I'd just like to spend a little time to review what exactly is heresy and what constitutes a heretic. All right, well, I, that's a, uh, a big uh, uh, issue, or is widely discussed, as it were, among trads. Uh, a lot of people have different opinions, but the only opinions that count are the opinions of the theologians and, and canonists. So uh, if you go through the manuals and you go through the commentaries, what you find is the, the essential definition is Canon 1325.2, is this, a uh, heretic is one who, after the reception of baptism, pertinaciously denies or doubts any of the truths to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. So that it's it's a, a, a simple definition. Uh, after this, so you have to be baptized, then you have to deny or doubt any of the truths to be believed by divine and Catholic faith, and you have to do that pertinaciously. So the the authors talk about that. They say that, uh, for instance, the um, uh, theologian Michel, uh, writing in the uh, this massive uh, dictionary, dictionary of, of Catholic theology, uh, gives a threefold distinction. He says there's a question here of dogma, which is heresy is false doctrine. Uh, and secondly, there's a question of the moral question of heresy. Heresy is a sin. And the third, heresy is a canonical crime. So he uh, says that, uh, okay, uh, what you deny has to be an article of the divine Catholic faith, uh, and that um, the teaching of the uh, universal ordinary magisterium suffices, and that uh, as regards denying a doctrine, you can deny the doctrine in explicit terms or in equivalent terms, and you can do this either through what they call a contradictory proposition, uh, which would be something like uh, um, Christ is not the Son of God. That's contradictory. Or a contrary proposition, which substitutes something else, where you say Christ is an angel. Okay? And then um, if you doubt it, if you suspend judgment uh, about a dogma and express that, then uh, that too falls under the level of heresy. So that's it, uh, you. Uh, that's what gets you started out at the dogmatic level, and then the question of interest is, uh, and that these theologians go into uh, um, this this uh, Michel and also a man named Mackenzie in a Catholic university uh, thesis. They talk about the uh, question of heresy as a sin. Uh, now, uh, in the different anti-state of Acantus treatise, treatises, they mi tend to uh, mix up the notion of heresy as a sin and heresy as, as an offense against church law. But uh, 
all the theologians talk about this, that you, heresy has to be a sin, uh, and uh, sin first, and the, the intellect has to work, and the will has to work. So you, you grasp that God uh, and the Church testify to the truth of a certain teaching, Okay, and say something like the eternal punishments of hell, and you know that the, the church teaches that. Uh, but then there's an act of the will where deliberately and obstinately turn your attention away from that authority of the church, and you want to substitute other considerations that uh, are opposed to or that cast doubt on that teaching. And so that's how it works. So you've got as you you uh, there, there's this dogmatic element, then the moral element. There's an uh, intellect, uh, and then there's the the uh, there's act of the will. So that's that's how the sin works. And the um, uh, writers such as Mackenzie and Michelle talk about the the psychology of the sin of heresy. So to use an analogy to see if I'm understanding this right, what you're saying is heresy is a or heresy can be also classified as a crime. And to use an analogy, I would put it from a layman person's perspective, murder is a sin. It's against God's law, but murder is also against the public law. And those are two separate issues. Yes, that's right. And and, and uh, that distinction is, is clearly expressed in um, the writings of canons and moral theologians, that you have something as, as a sin, and then uh, to certain sins that are particularly bad, the church herself would uh, add, would make a crime in terms of her own law. So that's, that's uh, the, uh, the two things. And to go to the meaning of pertinacity, because it's often cited, well, the person has to be warned uh, three times, ten times, fifteen times, maybe breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What exactly is the meaning of pertinacious? Okay, in terms in terms of the sin, the um, uh, theologians uh, say that okay, because heresy is a, a you're making this erroneous judgment. All right, uh, all you have to do is know uh, knowingly and willingly express your um, erroneous judgment about a, a doctrine in opposition to the church's magisterium. So that, uh, they say that from the moment one sufficiently knows the existence of the rule of faith in the church, and that on any one point uh, whatsoever, for whatever motive, whatever form you refuse to submit to it, then it's the formal sin of heresy. And it's it's uh, complete. And the authors go on and on about saying that well, uh, this doesn't uh, pertinacity in heresy doesn't mean that you stick with it for like a long time or that you get warnings from the church. Uh, they say that the the that this is something that's that's not something that's not necessary. Uh, one of the authors, Coronata, says. It's not required that the person who commits it remain in heresy for a long time. Even a moment's time suffices for pertinacity. And so pertinacity in relation to the crime, though, all that has to be demonstrated then, if, if I'm discerning this right, all that has to be demonstrated for the crime to have been committed is that the person that uh, is saying this heresy knows it's contrary to the teaching of the church. Yeah, and, and the presumption is that he knows. That's the presumption of 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 a law, because, and indeed of 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 all uh, actions 
in general that you're knowingly, uh, well, you're acting as a uh, knowingly and willingly as as a, a, a uh, uh, as a human being. So, uh, but even for the the simple crime of heresy, the idea is is that um, uh, there are the uh, the idea of warnings doesn't even come into the second level. Uh, second or third level that uh, of there there are six levels as it were of the crime of heresy that uh, the authors such as Zalba uh, and Regatello talk about, and the idea of of, of a warning um, is only comes into the second level. That at the first level uh, there's just a simple crime, and the the uh, you are. Uh, pertinacious at that point for having committed the crime. You know the uh, rule of faith and you uh, say something else. And so a couple of terms that are often confusing for people or thrown out there in these these articles today are formal heresy, formal heretic, material heretic versus public heretic and private heretic. What are the differences between these Those uh, the the four words that you've used are um, uh, actually uh, that's a a division applying to two different things. A public uh, the public versus uh, private heretic. Okay, that's a distinction is that um, the uh, heretical act is is only known, let's say, to a few people and is is fundamentally hidden. So it was also called occult uh, heresy. And then the other type of heresy is public, and the older commentaries will talk use that interchangeably with public or notorious or uh, manifest, etc. And that means that it was uh, done before a larger number of people, or that it was done in such a way that um, uh, you reasonably suspect that people were going to find out about it. So that's that's one distinction, and uh, with that in mind, if you you keep that in mind, you say that the public. Remember, if we go back to our general principle at the beginning of the show, that public heresy separates you from uh, the body of the church, okay? Because you have to profess the faith, as it were, publicly. So that's the first distinction as far as the forum goes for it. Uh, the second distinction when we're talking about the sin of heresy has to do with the with the moral act uh the 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 question of of um the question of sin uh the question of sin or not so the um what you can have is uh you can have someone who uh who could make a statement that was against defined dogma of the church but he does that out of uh, stupidity. He has a, and the, the canons talk about this. They talk about the rudes and 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 uh, rustici and, and uh, people who uh, have um, uh, you know wrong, uh, different wrong religious ideas, uh, but they don't have, as part of their intellect, the idea that God and the Church have testified to the truth of something that's the opposite of what they're saying. Okay, so they're not guilty of heresy. That's it's it's, it's a the um, uh, it's uh, materially uh, that's a case of uh, 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 material heresy or material uh, uh, 
case, too, of material heresy would be one of uh, someone who was raised in a um, uh, some sort of non-Catholic sect and who never uh, who held the certain heretical ideas of the sect and never really got beyond that to to understand it. So that's the the intellect side uh, that that one expresses this uh, uh, false dogmatic assertion um, uh, uh, out of a um, out of ignorance. But the, uh, the formal heresy uh, then adds to that uh, idea the uh, not only the expression of a, a false. Uh, doctrine, but there's a deliberate and there's uh, there's an obstinacy to it that y- you say okay um, that uh, the church teaches one thing, but I have all of these different other considerations, and uh, these seem very important to me. And you go back and forth between the two of them, and the way the uh, moralists and theologians describe the psychology of this is that the will forces you to uh, attend, to, to ignore the testimony of the church, the extrinsic evidence for the truth of something, and to go, as it were, with other arguments. And you end up denying the, um, uh, the doctrine that's taught by the church. And that can happen, in, that, uh, one of them says it can happen in a moment, moment's notice. Uh, but that is for that's the uh, and when you express that publicly, it's uh, you know it's it's formal heresy. It's the sin of formal heresy, and it is the uh, it's also subject to crime. But that's another issue. But in the case of identifying members of the church, does it matter if it's a formal heretic or a material heretic? Does that make a difference? Because a Protestant, I often hear, well, Bergoglio is a material heretic. Don't you can't judge him. He's still a member of the church, but a Protestant could also be a material heretic. Is that not true? And if I was to take Bergoglio as a material heretic as a member of the church, I would also have to take this Protestant. Yeah, that's 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 precisely it. Okay, so uh, the and that indeed is the problem. If we go to the question of, uh, first of all, the, the sins of formal heresy with someone like Bergoglio and Ratzinger and so on. There's no question that they are formal heretics, that they uh, they know what the rule of faith was, and they're modernists. They deny the the uh, rule of faith. The Ratzinger has heard somewhere that, well, the church is one and and uh, undivided in herself and separate from all others, which is Catholic teaching. But he comes up with the Frankenchurch heresy, which um, uh, undermines that uh, dogma of the faith and uh, turns it into mush. So he is a formal heretic. Um, or Bergoglio, obviously, he has heard somewhere probably that marriage is indissoluble, uh, and that the punishments of hell are eternal, okay? But yet he comes up with a, a theory of, of the annihilation of of uh, souls who did not go to heaven. And that, of course, is that's a contrary proposition that denies a um, something that's defeated divina et catholica, et definita. So it, the uh, those people are formal heretics. There's no question about it. Uh, the 
uh, R and R camp is inclined to say that well, there has to be a judicial process uh, to uh, ascertain this. But we're talking from the level of of sin. Even if that were true, the uh, if you want to say okay, they're not formal heretics, right? That they're simply material heretics. Well, then uh, the uh, material heretics uh, are uh, public material heretics are not considered members of the church either. So you correctly discern that when it comes to uh you know these these different um different protestants that they are in uh, many of them are in good faith and so on and uh if you maintain that well you know their their uh, uh material heresy doesn't uh take you out of the catholic church then you would have to accept them as part of the church and as the theologian Van Noort pointed out, that then this would destroy the visibility of the church and the integrity of the Catholic faith. So even if you maintain that, well, no, Bergoglio and company are not formal heretics, uh, the argument is, is cooked even on the question of material heretics because it's uh, the, the, the public material heretics, clearly the teaching is that they're not members of the church. So you end well, up with a theological prince, uh, the argument that's indefensible. Here's Father Barry, the, the Church of Christ, page 128, and here he says, So far as exclusion from the Church is concerned, it matters not whether the heresy or schism be formal or material. And another author I've commonly seen is Ott, uh, and he says on page 311, Open apostates and heretics, uh, public heretics, even those who err in good faith, material heretics, do not belong to the body of the church. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that the theologians have taught quite definitively that public heretics, whether they're formal or material, are not in the church. Yes, and the um, it is was confirmed. Uh, uh, Van Noort says it, uh, the theologian Van Noort in, in his uh, uh, Christ Church, one of the several volumes that he produced, says that it is, um, you know, that is confirmed by Mystici Corporis of, of Pius Twelfth, and he quotes Pius Twelfth about the sin of heresy uh, being one that takes one out of the church. So uh, uh, it could not be clearer. It could not be clearer. So I guess the the last question we would have is, um, given that this argument that they were heretics prior to their election, even, both Bergoglio and Ratzinger wrote a number of public books, and were there any heresies found in these? Yeah, and the the, the uh, I mean there were the uh, this indeed would make uh, another very good show on Catholic controversies, but uh, Ratzinger's uh, whole uh, I mean his uh, uh, the, his his uh, fingerprints are over all sorts of horrible stuff uh, uh, going all the way back to the fifties, and then uh, what you have with you you have Bergoglio he wrote this awful book. Um, uh, between heaven and earth with this uh, Rabbi Skorka. So the Bishop Sanborn has, has gone through that book and, and named and, and uh, given chapter and verse on other heresies there. But I mean, even apart from that, the, the baseline heresies of the conciliar church are bad enough. 
the idea that between Lumen Gentium and the Frankenchurch heresy, they deny the unity of of, uh, uh, of the Church. I mean, uh, uh, they also deny the idea that the Catholic Church is the sole means of salvation, and that's in the, their official teaching. So while you can spice things up, by going through Ratzinger's writings and Bergoglio's writings, or whatever sort of spice they use down there in Argentina, um, the uh, uh, the thing, the fact of the matter is that they all um, adhere to the same heresies, to the same errors uh, as uh, the rest of the members of the conciliar church. Well, even even if we. Uh ignore all the chili pepper, the flavoring that they add the, in the number of heresies. They all are modernists. They're open, public modernists, and modernism is condemned by the church as heresy. Is that not yeah, true? Be, yes, because it, what it does is it um, renders virtually impossible the idea of making a anything into a dogma. Uh, that everything is 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 uh, turned into mush. Uh, the uh, while the empty formula may be retained of uh, some dogmatic formula, the uh, sense of it is changed. And of course, it's it's not the words that uh, uh, count, but it's it's the sense. Uh, it's a sense in 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 uh, theology, and that is precisely what modernists do: that they they empty the standard doctrinal formulations of the correct sense and the correct meaning, and uh, that is the 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 poison, the poison of their heresy. And so it's worth worse than something like uh, uh, Luther. It's worse than Arius, because at least when they used words. You knew what they were talking about, but um, with uh, the modernists, it is this giant game of, of uh, uh, concealment, and that's that's what we see being played out. Uh, we see it being played out in spades with uh, Bergoglio, what he's um, uh, what he's up to. And so, just to kind of wrap up the show, I know we're running out of time here. Uh, you wrote an article a number of years ago dealing with uh, common objections of these lawyers and host of other writers, anti-state of a contest bring up. What was the name of that article again uh, we could reference? Well, I did. Uh, I've included these in, in, in a number of them, but uh, the uh, latest one is published <coughs> published on the internet, and it's uh, entitled Bergoglio's Got Nothing to Lose. And uh, the it, it lists uh, at the end the common objections that one finds to uh, a state of a contism. Uh, and uh, all of these are very easily answered in just a few phrases. Uh, all you have to do is, is, is uh, uh, get a, um, uh, refer to some different theolo- arguments and different theological manuals. And the answers, the, the, the problems, uh, the objections that are supposedly raised are really non-problems. One I don't think you you touched on in in the video, Stuck in the Rut, which is an excellent video, and I suggest listeners to go find it on the Internet and watch it. Um, But it's one I often hear of the state of a contest is making a RAS judgment or is using RAS judgment. The first thought in my mind is, well, the anti-state of a contest have a lack of judgment. But (laughs) that argument gives me a rash. (laughs) 
<laughs> the, um, it's dumb because rash judgment is, uh, you know, one of our sixth graders can tell you that a rash judgment is, is one that you make without evidence. And the evidence of uh, the uh, error, of, of the pertinacious error of all these people is all over the place. And uh, you, you uh, uh, see it uh, uh, played out. In the case of Bergoglio, you see it whenever, almost whenever he speaks. You know? So the idea is that there is plenty of evidence, and uh, it's, it's not a judgment that's, uh, that's rash at all. One is also, uh, don't forget, all, all traditionalists are making a judgment on the effects of Vatican II. And you look at the evidence that's in front of your eyes, and you look at it in a realistic way, and you see that it was a disaster. So you make a judgment on the basis of that, and um, the judgment on the authority of uh, implicit in that judgment that Vatican II was a mess, implicit in that judgment is a judgment on the authority that it could not have come from the authority of the church. It's like a giant a flashing hand uh, pointing at the balcony of uh, the, the uh, of St. Peter's, the loggia of St. Peter's, saying that uh, the church is a mess, and uh, the explanation uh, for this is that these guys are not real popes. They didn't have authority. It's like a flashing sign. So you make one judgment, and if you think it out logically, it should lead you to uh, another judgment. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at Catholic doctrines and Catholic principles uh, uh, and uh, make practical judgments and apply them. Well, if we're making the practical judgment, he's not the Pope, and they're accusing us of making a judgment, flip the coin around, they're making the judgment he is the Pope. In one way or the other, we have to make a judgment. Otherwise, you're just going around in doubt, and you don't know either way. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. I, I mean, be, because everyone recognizes you have to do something with the question of authority. Uh, and even if you only, if your theological education is only very dim, and you haven't had much, you know that the question of the Pope is very, very important for a Catholic, and that's that's something that has to be settled one way or another. And state of a conscious base their private judgment, what they discern, on objective criteria. And I think, uh, Father, what you started out at the beginning of the show, one of the objective criteria in order to be Pope is that one is Catholic. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, indeed that, that uh, uh, one is Catholic. You expect the Pope to be Catholic. Uh, the... Uh, I was, um, if I could indulge in an anecdote, uh, I was, uh, I uh, go occasionally to swim over at the YMCA to swim laps. And uh, there was a kid, uh, a young kid, like a seven-year-old or something, and one of the counselors for the day camp was taking care of this kid. And the kid had come in early, and I'm uh, listening uh, to this this counselor handle this this uh, little kid. And he asked the kid, well, um, or the kid says, well, what are we going to do? And the counselor said, well, we're going to do X, Y, Z and everything. And the kid says uh, to the counselor, uh, am I going to learn how to swim? And the counselor says, dude, is the Pope Catholic? 
<laughs> so, I mean, even they expect us so, all to be Catholic. So you really left the poor kid confused. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway. Well, Father, I, I guess one final thought I had, and, and maybe you could see if this is fair. To me, these these anti-Sage Bacantus defense lawyers uh, are like somebody sitting in a room. You have an elderly gentleman across the room, and you see a man walk in and just stab him with a knife. And they're telling us, well, don't make a judgment whether or not he's a murderer. Stay in the room. Don't make any judgment. Stay right in your seat. Uh, just on its face, it seems absurd. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, a uh, it's uh, these are arguments that are based on sort of a lack of connection with reality and lack of connection with reality and also lack of um, uh, willingness to understand exactly how the church's um, uh, legal system, as it were, is supposed to work, how moral theology is uh, supposed to function. And uh, they really don't have the training to do stuff like this, and and uh, to deal with uh, to deal with these uh, different issues. Uh, the fact that, that generally, you know, attorneys can write and can argue uh, gives them, uh, as as it were, a certain advantage. But uh, I had an attorney friend tell me that, that that's one of the dangers all the time that um, you're tempted to think that, well, you can argue anything successfully and that you can learn anything successfully. And that is simply, uh, uh, that certainly is not the case when it comes to uh, these issues of theology, moral theology, and uh, uh, dogmatic theology and canon law. It's, uh, uh, there's a lot to it. Well, Father, before we leave you for this evening, is there anything else you'd like to add to this discussion before you go? Uh, well, I think sim simply to say this, that, uh, you know, I uh, made this, this film stuck in the rut. It's had, a, uh, I, I think, a, a very good circulation. has been very effective with many people. And, uh, you know, as, uh, as it were, as objections and responses eventually come in um, to it, or people require uh, explanations, uh, as I anticipate will will happen, probably in the in the future, I will make a, a sequel to it to deal with these questions and uh, and these objections. And um, uh, that apart, I would say that um, uh, you know Catholics should try to get the 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 word about the word out about these uh, important issues of of uh, uh, authority. Uh, in the church, and to try to make people look at it uh, more realistically and, and more in terms uh, uh, that are in conformity with uh, the the nature of the church and what we're supposed to believe about the church and her authority and the papacy and so on. Well, Father Chicago, I want to sincerely thank you for your time, and I'll let you. I know you had supper waiting there, so I won't keep you. But God bless, and we hope to talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. Take care, James. Bye now. God bless. If you have any questions for Father Anthony Chicada or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at controversies at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to Father Chicada. We would like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, 
that you would please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.